This episode of the Arbitration Station podcast is brought to you by MB Kemp LLP. MB Kemp is a nimble, adaptable, and current international law practice with strong east-west links based in London, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and Hong Kong. For more information, visit www.kempllp.com or visit us on LinkedIn at Kemp LLP. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gaillard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Joel Dahlquist. And I'm Sadia Petit. And I'm Brian Kodak. The only guy with a microphone. And we are your co-hosts <laughs> for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world. And 1% actual arbitration world. 1% Paris Arbitration Week, I think. Sadia, tell us what is it like out there in the real world of arbitration conferences? Oh. So Paris Arbitration Week became COVID Arbitration Week really quickly, first of all. (laughs) The number of messages I got after the Paris Arbitration Week, like, oh, by the way, sorry I kissed you on the cheek to say hello. I had COVID. We talked about this (laughs) February 2020. We did an episode talking about should we kiss each other on the cheek now, like French people? I can tell you it's happening. Oh, no, it is happening. It is happening. So, no, but long story short, um, Paris Arbitration Week was very, very well attended. Um, the, The opening cocktail itself had like, I don't know how many people. It was crazy, almost a thousand or something, if I'm not being... Exaggerating, it was impossible to have a meaningful conversation with one person <laughs> because there were so many people, as you can imagine. But the, there were so many events. There were like, uh, on average, I think nine or ten events per day, two or three cocktails. Impossible to go to all of them, to be honest. Um, I myself personally, uh, we hosted two events at the firm, so that in itself kept us super busy <laughs> if you add this and just maybe one extra event it's it's i mean you gotta work guys you gotta work a lot of people were there from outside and i feel like they blocked the week to network it's very difficult to do that i think when you're based in the city or at least if your mothership yeah. is based in the city because it's like business as usual you can't really be like oh, i'm gonna go on cocktailing for the whole week you know you can't <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're too <laughs> close to the office yeah, it was it was difficult, but it was really um, no. It was the quality of events was very good. I thought um, there were people from everywhere in the world, and it really felt like the community of arbitration got back together again. Um, it, it was nice. It was honestly overall, I thought you guys were thoroughly missed, thoroughly missed <laughs> by a lot of people. Um, I know. I, I thought it was a, it was good. I mean, we we hosted at the firm. We hosted an event in English, one in French, because as you can imagine, even though it's Paris Arbitration Week, it was almost ninety nine percent in English. Yeah. Um, but we did both, so I was happy about that. Yeah, I saw so many LinkedIn messages about like this rebirth that everyone was having and their passion yeah. for arbitration and pictures of hundreds of people in a room. It was uh, totally not COVID friendly. <laughs> and uh, 
we actually got a message from the organizers at the end saying, oh, by the way, there were multiple cases of COVID at the opening, at the closing ceremony, during the, the yacht, whatever it was, the, <laughs> yes, the, the cruise, sorry, not the yacht. There's no yacht in, in Paris, but uh, <laughs> the cruise on the Peniche. So, yeah, I guess. That's we all, like, that, that not just for arbitration conferences, it feels like in many places now in the world, with some major exceptions in China, for example, it feels like we are all buying into this. Like it's, it's a calculated risk and you may get it, but that's like built in to life now, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's true. And, and on top of COVID in Paris, there was like a, everybody, I don't know if it was the same in the UK or elsewhere, but everybody was sick, like uh, coughing, uh, cold, uh, <laughs> You know, all the other viruses that also exist, you know, that people forgot about. So it was kind of, yeah, every, everyone had something going on. But, but you know, arbitration must go on. I know. That's what it, that's what it looked like. Everyone, like did their cost-benefit analysis and decided to stay. Yeah, exactly. But I saw, um, I saw a Metaverse conference. Was that part of Paris Arbitration Week or was that a separate conference? Uh-huh. It must have been. I, I don't know uh, for sure, Brian. I'm sorry, but there were so many topics. And yeah. um, I must imagine it was part of it. Uh, who, who organized that conference, the Metaverse that you were talking about? I I forget who organized it. It was just someone on my LinkedIn. I just saw that she had been on the panel of it. Mm. And I don't know if you guys have seen any pictures or videos of what it looks like. Yeah, a lot of them. And I am... Um never as old as I am right now, I would be very happy for you to, to explain the metaverse as if I were 76 years old, which I well, basically am. Okay, so I just watched a YouTube video on what the metaverse was. I watched some like 18-year-old go to the metaverse for 24 hours and there's land and people buy this land and you can go in and out of people's lands and there's different games and activities going into different lands and you can literally spend and you make an avatar for yourself and then you can basically do whatever you want in this verse. You can talk to people. You're, you're describing a computer game and like an online. It, it, it is. It is like an online computer game, but, but yeah, you, but you're putting on like these glasses. So you really feel that you're there and you're actually mm. walking around. It's like in front of you, you have little like sticks that like control your arm movements and, and then so the conference, it wasn't just like Sims avatars just staying put. They were looking to each other. They were gesticulating. They were talking to each other. And I was like, I mean, it is, it, it, I, I literally thought I, this is what people felt like in the 90s when they said the internet was invented and people were like, mm. oh, but things that connect in the air. Like, I don't think that's possible. And then I saw it and I was like, I mean, I don't know if it will ever replace it because as you say, it's about the spontaneity of meeting people and going on cruise ships and da-da-da-da-da, but that could even be on the metaverse and you can still converse with people. It's not just like hopping into a side chat room on Zoom. It's actually like walking up to someone and talking and be like, oh, excuse me, I'm going to have to go. And then you like walk your little avatar away to like the next person. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's really interesting if you see, conf- I mean, there was, I think there was another, I saw some pictures or at least a snapshot of a panel. I don't know if it was a panel, but a discussion on the metaverse, uh, on arbitration. And when you're speaking, you can make movements with your hand and your face. And it really feels like a video game, but where you're, yeah. you're and creating the reality. Yeah. It's used, it uses the Ethereum token to like buy into the metaverse if you want to buy land or you want to like mm-hmm. enter certain games. And 
there will be disputes out of this. Yes. <laughs> I, there's I already I think, a law. I think there's already a law firm that bought like because you can buy space, you know, on this verse. Yeah. So they're renting space or they bought a space there. There's a law firm that you can go to on the verse. There's already been a, I think, a sexual harassment claim or something. What? Who got, yeah. Didn't you hear about that? There was a girl who got harassed on, sexually harassed on the metaverse. Oh, this is so she, too, too yeah. good. Yeah. So she was <laughs> like, like uh, you know, it was literally, you know, hearing someone in real life. Civilization has existed for three months and there's already sexual harassment. <laughs> yeah. There's sexual harassment going on. So... And then the, just the cybersecurity of it all and yeah. like ownership rights and all of these things that can definitely come out of it. And the hack, yeah, the hacking that can happen not only in the transactions of entering the verse and while you're yeah. in the, the metaverse, but your ownership in there. And I, yeah, I, I can't imagine how this is going to turn out, but I, th- we do have to stay on, on the edge as much as we on can. On top of things. Yeah, I know. Exactly. <laughs> we have to stay on top of things. For sure. Okay. Well, let's get into this universe. Uh, <laughs> Joel, what are we talking about today? You're looking at me. Yeah. As if I know, I think it's, a, we're only doing two segments. That's my contribution today <laughs> is to make sure it's not going to be a long episode. And then, then I'm, I'm done. It's, it's Sadia, I think, who will be our professor. But we're going to talk about a part um, going back to the physical elements of things or moving away from the virtual elements of things. And actually, and now that I say this out loud, I realize that it's not even true. But we're going to talk about the notion of territory in investment arbitration and all that it entails, trying to talk about, you know, what happens when you have an investment that's on a territory that, for example, has been annexed by another state, mm. to it might bring up some uh, memories about some cases that are not um, that recent, but that are uh, very well. Uh, I mean, at least uh, everyone's talking about them right now because of what's going on, of course, in the Ukraine and, and Russian uh, war context. So, yeah, so we're going to talk about the notion of territory. Uh, that's that's the substantive segment, and I'll tell you more during uh, during the segment. What else, guys? What's the what's the other uh, thing on the menu today? The other thing on the menu is happy fun time and expert shopping. I guess both in the wider sense of like finding an expert and how do you interact with your experts and who are the experts and how do we think about them, and also maybe there's you know, a narrow sense of expert shopping when you're actually switching experts because there's an issue with an expert you already retained and i am curious about your experience and impressions about this because i am usually sitting as a tribunal secretary when already established who are the experts i don't Mm. get to see how the sausage is made how the reports are written and how the experts are retained it's a messy sausage don't let me tell you it is So the notion of territory in bilateral investment treaties. Um, why am I talking about this? Well, because a lot of the definition of investment in BITs include a specific reference to the fact that the investments have to be made in the territory of the host state. Um, there are some exceptions. Um, I think that there's no reference to territory in uh, the CETA agreement, which is surprising. 
um, not in the sense that you would see in a, in a traditional BIT. And so the question, of course, if, is you if you have in the definition of the BIT a reference to the territory, uh, then oftentimes what happens is that it becomes an issue for the jurisdiction of the tribunal um, to determine whether or not uh, there was an investment in the territory of the host state um, and the tribunal has to determine whether it has jurisdiction over an investment which was or not on the territory of the host state. Mm-hmm. Now, as I mentioned in my introduction, uh, this question has, there, there's multiple layers to that one. But because of time constraint, <laughs> I will address two specific points. One uh, will be what happens when you have a of what happened in the past uh, when there was a question of annexation of a territory. And here I'm going to draw upon what are known as the Crimea cases. Okay. And the second point, which is unrelated, uh, but also interesting, is what happens when part of your investment is, or maybe the whole of your investment actually, is not per se on the territory of the host state understood as the physical territory, but it has benefits. It has a mm-hmm. positive economic impact on the ter- of, uh, on the host state in itself. Is that sufficient or not? So that's the benefit doctrine. So I'm going to address those two points. Is that w- why you said that we may not necessarily be only in the exactly? Physical world? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I just realized there was the second point. Absolutely. Um, now, a little bit of elements before I go into these two points of definition. How do you define a territory? Uh, well, there's a, an article by Malcolm Straw that defines territory as including land areas, subter- subterranean areas, waters, rivers, lakes, the airspace above the land, etc., and the territorial sea. This is also echoed by the ICJ, the International Court of Justice in Nicaragua, finding that it extends to the internal waters and territorial sea of every state and to the airspace above its territory under both customary international law and common treaty standards. Now, of course, some of the BITs also have a definition of territory, but some don't. Article 29 of the Vienna Convention of Law and Treaties, which parentheses is used as customary international law to interpret the language of treaties, uh, provides that unless a different intention appears from the treaty or is otherwise established, a treaty is binding upon each party in respect of its entire territory. It actually doesn't really help, right? Because it doesn't give you a definition of what territory is. Um, But what happens, and here is the question, million dollar question, when Russia took over Crimea in 2014, there was a question on what happened because, of course, there were some cases arising out of measures taken or actually the invasion by Russia of um, uh, Crimea at the time. And what happens in, in, in uh, cases of annexation of territory? Could you make a claim? And in this instance, the question was, was it possible to make a claim under the Russia-Ukraine BIT? Because 
for Ukrainian investors that were suffering damages from the measures taken by Russia in Crimea. Would that be possible if Crimea is not officially part of the territory of Russia? Mm -hmm. That was the million dollar question, billion dollar question at the time. (laughs) Um, And so what do you guys think? (laughs) I'm going to put it to you. I mean, of course, it depends on the language of the treaty, right? But um, and the, let me let me just read out Article One Four of the Ukraine Russia BIT. It defines territory shall denote the territory of the Russian Federation or the territory of the Ukraine and also the respective ex- exclusive economic zone and the continental shelf as defined in conformity with the international law. So, having giving you now the definition of territory in the BIT, what would be I mean, your views, or maybe not your views, but your legal reasoning as to whether or not it could be considered on the territory of the of the Russian Federation. You've you've closed out the door that we normally want to say it depends and the text of the treaty. <laughs> now, now you read out the definition, so we can't use that. No, you can't <laughs> use that. And yes, that. and yes, yeah. uh, you know, I can tell you that. There's still um, authors um, that that says it depends, and they give both results. I mean, so that's why I was interested in in your initial, I think, views. I think it, it sometimes it also depends on the language as to do we need the investments to have been made in the territory. Like, I don't think that was part of you wrote out the definition of the because it also ties into the definition of investment, no. Mm. But, like, when right. there's a, a temporal aspect to this as well, separate from like who is now claiming to be in possession of this territory, mm-hmm. when is also a crucial question because if the investment was made, you know, in 2004, that's obviously right. when the, the territory in question was under another states clearly and undisputedly so. Mm-hmm. And it's got to be interesting. I, I don't know enough about these cases. Maybe we'll get into that. But I would assume that, of course, the respondent in this case, the Russian Federation, mm-hmm. has to argue that this is not within the territory. That's what you do if you try to knock the case out of jurisdiction. While at the same time, the Russian Federation's policy very clearly and very officially is that Crimea is part of the Russian territory. And there's one like it's a diplomatic hard party line and then there's like the strategic if you admit that then you don't have a jurisdictional objection well that's a very good point right because i think even just on the basis of good faith how could you argue on the one hand that it is your territory for sovereignty purposes but not a territory for bat purposes right Mm. i mean that's just a question um that was discussed in fact um well let me let, sorry Brian do you, you want to No I was going to say is that even relevant when it, the I think the definition and the temporal aspect are the most important because if you're talking about mm-hmm. the expectations of the investor at the time they made the investment and where the economic benefits are attributed to which is in Crimea and Ukraine at the time it made the investment I guess unless the breach happened after the annexation mm-hmm. then that falls away could fall away for the per- because you're mm-hmm. basically only claiming damages for benefits derived at the time when this territory belonged to another or was annexed. Um, so I guess it, it very fact dependent then. 
Well, actually, there was a lot of discussion on whether or not territory, of course, there was the temporal element, but also just to start with a discussion on whether it, it concerns the ure or the facto mm. territory. Because in a case where you have uh, annexation, then mm-hmm. it's the facto. facto territory. And there you have um, separate... Um, so just, just by way of background, I have not read i don't know if you guys have but the awards uh relating to these cases because not because i'm lazy (laughs) or (laughs) i didn't want to read them for this segment that could have happened but um because they're not published they're all Mm. confidential so what you have is discussion about those um awards and those decisions but there is quite a few articles that were written by um authors discussing this and, you know, having strong views one way or another. So, for example, Patrick Dunbury argues for a strict approach. He rejects any way for the international investment tribunals to uphold jurisdiction in their Crimea-related investments arbitrations, objecting any kind of interpretation of the notion of territory which would cover investors in the annexed territory um, and allowing them to uh, pursue claims. On the other hand, you have other authors that considered a such approach would deprive investors of an effective legal remedy within the system, specifically created for investors to protect their investments um, in, you know, in, in the arbitration forum. And this uh, has been followed by, for example, Professor Doring, Doring, sorry for mispronouncing your name, who followed the ILC's deliberations um, and. Um, stating that the application of Article 20 of the Vienna Convention of Law and Treaties I read uh, before uh, would also include territories under effective controls of a state um, and uh, when there was uh, no recognition of, uh, sorry, and that would not imply the recognition of an annexation. Um, So what I understand is that all jurisdictional decisions of the arbitral tribunals in the Crimea-related investment cases against Russia uh, so are, like I said, unpublished. But this was the, the latter approach that I just mentioned. The extensive approach was the one that was followed by the tribunals in those, in those cases. So it was reported, for example, that the Uncitral Tribunal uh, affirmed jurisdiction unanimously in the case of Everest Estate LLC and others versus Russia in March 2017. Uh, And throughout 2017, similar jurisdictional decisions were rendered with regard to Crimea-related claims uh, filed by Ukrainian investors. Uh, And the claimants allegedly also asserted that Russian control over the Crimea is enough for BIT jurisdiction referring that the general principle the general principle that treaties are binding on a state in respect of its entire territory. That's what they said. Mm-hmm. Um, also, it is reported that tribunals in the PJSC, Ukrainafta versus the Russian Federation in Stabil and others versus Russian Federation cases held that protection under the treaty extends to Ukrainian investors in the Crimean Peninsula from the date when Russia signed a decree incorporating Crimea into the Russian Federation. So here's your temporal element. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And thereby establishing effective control. Uh, The tribunals reportedly concluded that the notion of territory covers the entire territory under Russian's control 
and that extending protection to Ukraine investments is compatible with the BIT's object and purpose. And they also refer to the good faith principle that prevents Russia from claiming control of Crimea at the same time, denying BIT protection to Ukraine investments. Mm. So you can't have both. Yeah. It's interesting, especially due to the the manner in which it was annexed. And if you mm-hmm. think about people, let's take the inverse, which is countries that don't recognize territories or recognize part, you know, if it, for example, colonies, I remember going to a Bickle conference yeah. where they talked about how this was affected by colonies and how mm-hmm. colonies declared their own independence. And that was actually highly contested for certain colonies or they colonies switched owners um, mm-hmm. and how that, how that was transferred. I think it's interesting if, if a state declares that this is part of their territory and the international community does, does not recognize that decree or declaration, how, where do you measure the intent to control or the, the effectiveness of the control? Mm-hmm. That's a very good question. Yeah, and what's the, what's the de facto, what are the elements of a de facto mm. control in yeah. when it isn't recognized by the international community i guess you can break that down into certain objective criteria yeah i mean is it because you have a power over you know the legis you know the judiciary the executive yeah controlling um i don't know politically is it the right word or um yeah it's hard to it's hard to establish isn't it i mean this opens a few a few questions, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it raises there are a lot of questions. It raises the question of what happens when there's more than one sovereign uh, claiming territory oh, over yeah. which none of them actually fully exercise control. For example, between China and Taiwan or North and South Korea. Yeah, right? exactly. Uh, what happens when a sovereign has lost control, effective control over parts of a territory to which it still aspires? Uh, for example, that was the case in Cyprus, um, over the northern parts of the island of Georgia, over the provinces of Abkhazia and South Ossetia, I understand. There's also the question of uh, a sovereign that might factually exercise control over territory claimed by another aspiring sovereignty. For example, the case regarding Israel over the Palestinian territories or Kosovo over mm. the former Serbian province. I mean, it raises so many questions. What happens when you have de facto, and again, the question is, how do you define de facto control, but elements that show that there's an agreement maybe that um, one of the state uh, can control parts of it uh, without claiming sovereignty to it. Uh, and, and so it could take measures that impact um, the investments. Uh, what do you do in that case? You know, uh, mm-hmm. that's also another another issue that I can't tell you a lot about, but <laughs> I'm dealing with right now. Um, and so there's a lot of um, issues uh, arising out of uh, the concept of territory, and it would be really, I think, useful to see what happens, um, you know, in the future. In these cases, because I think they're going to. Would, it would also be interesting to actually be able to read. The yes, awards. and I'm sure actually there must be a lot of people that have been involved in those cases, and there've been some discussion. But it would be good for them to be published in some at some point for sure. Yeah, absolutely. for sure. I don't. Yeah. I think these cases are actually the easy or more obvious. I would say cases than if we mm-hmm. were looking at something else like like colonies. Yeah. Because yeah. um. You're right. 
if it like if a colony switches under the purview of another kingdom, let's say, does the investor then have to refile arbitration against the new sovereign? Mm-hmm. But then I think there would be the question of succession of states, no? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Think? Or maybe, yeah, that that would probably apply. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, this raises there's this. It's it's not as in fact when you think about the fact scenario of annexation. It's pretty even if it was it was an interesting scenario. Yeah. There are so many other scenarios that are not as clear cut, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the first element. And so kind of unrelated is also the question of, you know, is territory always physical? You know, has it always has to be on the physical territory of, uh, uh, of the host state? Or is it enough to say that there was some economic benefit uh, obtained by the state from the operation? Um, I guess it's a rhetorical question, right, if I'm asking it. <laughs> but there, there was a test that was established in the Abaclat case where right. Argentina challenged the jurisdiction of the arbitral tribunal, arguing that the security entitlements purchased by the claimants were not investments within the meaning of the Article 1 of Argentina, Italy, BIT, and of also Article 25 of the Exit Convention, because it pointed to the fact that these transactions did not occur, quote to quote, in the territory of Argentina. But the tribunal, as you all know, of course, dismissed this challenge, finding the transactions were to be considered as investments made in Argentina because the funds generated by the bond issuing process has been used to finance the economic development of the country. This has also been followed by other tribunals, Ambiente Fischio and Giovanni Alemani cases. Um, one of the characteristics of the solutions adopted in this case is the attempt to deprive the territory of requirement of any physical connotation on the assumptions that, and here I quote, financial instruments such as bonds and securities are not physical investments, and that therefore a different criteria was needed to actually localize them. So what happens if it's not just a financial investment? What if you have you know, investments, uh, other kind of investments that are happening that you have an IT or R&D going on or mm-hmm. other stuff that is just um, not on the territory, uh, but benefits the invest, you know, the host state, then what happened then? Um, so in accordance to the benefit test, there's some investment tribunals that have emphasized that there was no and here I quote, absolute condition that the investments be made in the host state and that it was possible that the investments be made partly from the investor's home country, provided that they are made for the purposes of the project to be carried out abroad. And that's the, um, that's, I quoted here, uh, Lessi versus Alger- Algeria. Mm-hmm. Uh, tribunals have also considered uh, the locus of an investment where the transaction accrues to the benefit of the state itself. And here's there's another case involving Ukraine for other reasons. Uh, it's the Inmaris uh, Perestroika versus uh, Ukraine case. Um, so it's interesting. And, and in that specific case, actually, and here I can quote the passage, the tribunal considered that an investment may be made in the territory of a host state without there being a direct transfer of funds, in particular if the transaction benefits the state itself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that's to be kept in mind as well, is that there's no absolute requirement 
that the whole of your investment has to be made in the territory of the host state. And in fact, it doesn't even have to be at all in the territory if it's a financial of a financial nature. But there needs to be some sort of nexus, some element of connection in the form of benefits typically under this test. Exactly. Yeah, so you can't okay. you know, make an investment in, I don't know, in, in a metaverse or a, it's in space or whatever, and then try to Ooh, grab that at once. I like place. that linked with the metaverse, exactly. <laughs> yes, if you've made an investment in the metaverse, it's not in the, per se, maybe in the strict definition of the territory of the host states. Joel, you don't have to comment on this, but it's definitely these like Huawei letters before action that have been sent by Huawei to the different European countries about supplying 5G technology to mm. these European countries and being prevented from doing so. Um, and that's, that obviously is exactly what you're talking about, Sadia, with the technology transfers, mm-hmm. um, which are obviously developed in another state but which are transferred and like released and given access into different jurisdictions which inevitably cause economic benefits tbd (laughs) tbd exactly (laughs) so voila guys was that short and sweet enough for you joe it really was and it was also very well structured i'll give you an a plus (laughs) (laughs) it was very well structured thank you (laughs) sonny Well, you're welcome. And there's a lot of material on this for people who are interested um, either on point A or point B that I described. There's actually just been um, a recent book that was published on, um, I think, investment in um, in territories that are uh, subject to conflict in their specific chapters on the notion of territories um, in annex um you know, in 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 situation where territory was annexed, for example. So that's I I will give that reference um, to you in in the link to our podcast. Is uh, there's not a lot of stuff on this, my friends. There's a lot of discussion, but on the Crimea cases, but it's it's unexplored territory. Oh, I should have. Oh, <laughs> The selection of experts and expert shopping in international arbitration. Sadia will have to uh, provide our anecdotes and then Joel can provide his uh, external uh, perceptions of what's happening. But there's a lot of different schools of thought on how you approach experts. And we've actually had experts, including damages expert, Brett Kazmarek, and I asked him what happens when he's approached and to be engaged and what are the good questions to ask and, and how intricate that interaction is. But I think a lot of people do it differently because a lot of people don't know how to find the proper expert or they know how to find a general damages expert, but they don't know how to find an expert that is specifically an expert in waste removal and recycling services or something like that. And I don't know how you find that, whether you source it from your colleagues or whether you um, do a scatter gun approach and just send emails to everyone in your first Google search and try to vet them in some sort of uh, introductory interview style. Um, I don't know if it's firm policy based or whether it's individual, um, but it's definitely different no matter who you talk to. Um, I don't know, Sadia, when you've had um, experience engaging experts, whether you've hit any roadblocks or 
any funny expert interviews that you've conducted? Well, it's tough, right? I mean, when you are looking for a specific, specific expertise on a very technical, I mean, you know, if it's like a delay expert or like a quantum right. expert on on cases that are very usual, then you all, you go to kind of your go-to people mm-hmm. and go-to firms that you've used in the past that, that you were happy with. And I'm, I think if I start citing one name, another one will hate me. So I'm not going to cite any <laughs> no, names. No, no. <laughs> uh, but, you, you know, you, you guys know who you are. This is, it's fair to yeah. say that an experienced arbitration lawyer has uh, sort of in his or her toolbox yeah. a list of, of go-to experts for certain recurring general subject areas, or at that's least you're right. aware of like their, their standing in the market or mm-hmm. whatever. That's something you know, right? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, 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 go ahead. Sorry, there's just a, a, a final thing is that um, I, I have not used uh, that person, but there are brokers also of experts. Have you used Oh. Them? No, yeah. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, somebody contacted me once and was like, I can get you anything. Like, you know, some mining experts, an IT expert, whatever expert, this expert, that expert, whichever country you want. Yeah. So he's I didn't in know that. That's yeah, an amazing yeah. niche work to be doing. Mm. And how do they like, so how do, if they've never had to look for an expert, you know, like testing certain kinds of cement or whatever, how do they... Uh, maybe we should have like a, an expert on experts on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I think that guy was the expert on experts, in fact. Yeah, and he's probably going to send me a message after this one and be like, hey, why didn't you mention me by name? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I saw an interesting approach and I think it's complete gaming and I really didn't like it, but I clearly saw that the opposing side, who was a very sophisticated law firm, had chosen a very unsophisticated expert or an amateur expert because of their opportunity to be able to control the expert, um, mm-hmm. the ability to provide a ton of assumptions, the ability to form their thinking in the way that they want to structure it without the bounce back that you would get from a more experienced expert who wants to control their career and reputation in the field and wants to make sure that they're actually putting forward something that they can justify on cross-examination. I think those experts get crucified in cross-examination. So That's a- what I was going to say. <laughs> and Joel's like, what? Do you think the tribunal are stupid? Yeah. <laughs> no, I was so. going to say that's when Brian can shine. That's like an open goal to do a, an effective cross-examination where you could actually make some difference. Mm, like spending half of your time just on their CV alone being like, I don't see anything here relating to what we're talking about. <laughs> but I found that to be just... A, a very bad tactic, but that some, some I've seen it to uh, more than enough to say that it's not just an isolated incident. Um, but I thought that this, that's a different approach in how you engage experts, which is your ability to control the expert. And I think it's the same thing when you appoint tribunal members, no, like getting someone new uh, or taking a different angle and approach and knowing that if you pick a senior arbitrator, you're, they're going to do whatever they want. Yeah, you want someone who's experienced, but also someone that you can sort of educate to your perspective mm. without them having already. Like, it's a very diplomatic way to put it. <laughs> Do you interview uh, Brian in your experience? Because my answer is yes to that question. That yes, absolutely. You. And maybe that comes from my background, but um, Were you definitely. Gonna know- do you know my question? I haven't even asked. No, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> question. Oh, I, th- oh, I thought you said, like, have yes. I interviewed? Have I interviewed? Yes, yes, it is. That's, oh my gosh, you're reading in my mind. That was my question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I definitely, it's, it's more to the extent that can you 
do the analysis that I need? Do you have the expertise to be able to make mm-hmm. it as um, holistic as possible? Um, and your experience in disputes, because I think you can get a really great expert who knows everything. And then they get in the cross-examination section, even if they're the most competent between the experts and they just don't know how to communicate their, their premises appropriately. They don't know how to withstand its scrutiny. Um, they'll just give up points at, at the moment of, of any sort of hurdle. Uh, and so I think that's something that is, is worth asking. I like this. Uh, Jan submitted some questions. So what do you do when you find out that the other side has been speaking to all forensic document experts in London to see whether they can support its case? Mm. Then what happens, right? Because you might be, they might be all conflicted out in a way. <laughs> and people do do that. They'll share enough information that the person is conflicted. Mm. I, That's I an guess, American. That's yeah. an American doing that. That's 100% <laughs> an American lawyer. <laughs> But in that case, they must be asking for some preliminary advice or report. And I know people go that far, don't they, Sadia? Like you, you give enough so that they can provide an, a preliminary analysis. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, and- I've never had that experience where they conflicted because they've had initial interview or some kind of preliminary documents or something. Mm. No, I've, I've never seen it myself, but I've, I've heard, I've heard. It's going to be relatively easy to do that if, if it's a narrow subject. I mean, if, not if you're talking about like evaluating a going concern. But if you're talking about something where there are legitimately seven experts in the world, mm. four of whom could testify effectively, it can't be that hard to conflict them all out mm-hmm. if you're in bad faith. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's true. What if you want to, you receive a report from your expert and either it's completely substandard or it really didn't say what you wanted it to say? I've actually, here I have some experience because I've been the expert in a very limited sense on like Swedish law oh. issues. And it, that is, I think I am just so junior that I don't really know the, the name of the game just yet because I, I figure that an expert, especially if it's on your local law expertise, you write your thing and then that's it. And then counsel has to make arguments based off of that and, and uh, you know, the arguments are different from like, this is the way I perceive the law as it's written or stated or interpreted. Then counsel doesn't agree. My position as the expert is that then it's counsel's job to, to, you know, to, to do with the expert report, whatever they want to. That is obviously, I now know, uh, somewhat naive. And there's some span for back and forth to tailor the report so that it meets the expectations of the the client or the lawyer retaining the expert mm. but exactly how to balance that and how much you can push back as the the client lawyer uh, that's obviously very different and probably tied to legal background too i wouldn't call it amateur Joel. i'd call it noble what you did mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, thank your you. un- unwavering analysis i think is much more noble than someone saying well we disagree on this let's just leave it out i think the way to the way to solve it typically is with assumptions, right? You, mm-hmm. you change what, what goes in, like, okay, but so then if we remove that assumption and instead this is the assumption we give you, what would you say? Mm-hmm. That, that's all, often what happens in arbitrations as well, that the experts, they have different outcomes because they have different inputs as well. Mm-hmm. And it's so much is in how you phrase the input into the analysis. Mm-hmm. I've, I've actually spoken to, uh, and I'm not going to name that person, uh, to pr- protect his confidentiality, but um, a very well-known uh, professor of law 
and he used to, and he's still doing it to a certain extent, but um, act as expert, um, as um, a legal expert in uh, investment arbitration. And he's more so doing uh, acting as an arbitrator now. And he told me how uncomfortable he would get when our firm would ask him to change his text, you know, his, mm-hmm. uh, his views or, or even the language, because every in law, every word matters, right? So mm-hmm. if you change, uh, and so he, he had told me, he's like, I don't think I'm going to do it anymore because I just don't, you know, and that, that comes back to your point. It's just, uh, also it creates, I think, difficulty in terms of if in the future you want to maybe act as an arbitrator. Doesn't it create conflict? Probably if you're acting as expert um, on a specific matter. I mean, I think Absolutely. it might create difficulties. Um, if it's public. So it could. If, if it's yeah. public and if it's a recurring issue, it, it could. But I mean, Even if it's once, no? Even if it's once, you're... you're no, I meant the, the issue, the legal issue itself. Oh, the like legal if, issue, if yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It depends yeah. on how narrow. Like if you're writing an expert opinion on FET, that doesn't happen, obviously. But if you were to do that hypothetically... That would be complicated because then yeah, for every yeah. other potential investment case that will come up. But if you're yeah, writing on like yeah. the calculation of interest for a certain kind of financial instrument under yeah, a certain yeah, yeah. kind of domestic law, mm-hmm. you don't really. And I also, I mean, this is this goes back to issue conflicts. You can always, I mean, there are academics appointed arbitrators all the time, and they write things in their academic capacity that doesn't necessarily conflict them out. And I think ideally, an expert report is as probative as should be as probative as like an academic paper that is not written against payment. That's the ideal, of course, the academic ideal. Mm-hmm. Uh, then to some people, it is not as probative because it is also closer to, to party pleadings than any like random independent academic paper is because you're still acting on someone's instructions. But. Mm. I think we just, we, I still have to remind, I mean, everybody probably knows this, but experts, at least in our English law, the basic principle is that experts owe their duty to assist primarily to the court mm-hmm. as opposed yeah. to the parties. Uh, I think that's yeah, also... And this, in the, this is in the IBA rules. For yeah, that, I was like, going to say. You're independent and impartial as an expert, even if you're, you're retained yeah. by a party. Same as for arbitrators. Yeah. Then if an expert is changed, does the court have any power to order the production of any of those documents if it's mm. to assist them? Oh, that, yeah. <laughs> that, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Or they can appoint, can't they? The court can appoint its own expert if it sees yeah. necessary. Yes. Under yeah. the English rules, you can. A party that wishes to instruct a replacement expert, the court usually allows it. On the condition that the report of the first expert is disclosed. Ah. I mean, in in arbitration, correct me if I'm wrong now, I'm just trying to game this out in my head. If a party retains an expert, the expert writes a report, the party isn't happy, the tribunal never knows about it, right? You don't inform the tribunal about which experts you have retained until you submit the report on the record. And at that point, it's going to be pretty hard to like withdraw it. No, well, I guess you can. Yeah, No, yeah, you're right. Or you... you can strike it. Uh, yeah, I guess. Or if you change between... a report off the record that you've already submitted. I mean, you, I mean, you wouldn't, and it's it's That's not a good suicide. idea. But there's nothing. Yeah, I mean, no, few few arbitrators, I guess, would would accept that unless you have good reasons. But it's there's nothing. There are no rules. I mean, this is well, all. What's the point of doing that, though? Because that's that's like admitting, oh no, there's something in there that I don't <laughs> want to be produced yeah, or something, yeah, I right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. legally, no one would. I mean, strategically, well, so I guess that, that's what I'm saying. So typically, yeah. you you wouldn't submit an expert report 
unless you know, unless you wanted to submit it. And if you yeah. don't submit it, there's not, the tribunal doesn't even know what kind of expert you've been talking to until that's there's a report on the record. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. And there's multiple cases. I mean, I was involved in cases where it's not that we didn't want to produce it, but we just had one initially with the request for arbitration, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you need it also sometimes even just for to get financing for some cases. Yeah. You know, and you're not even going to produce it at the time because you're not even there. And then the case eventually settles or <coughs> or you find another expert that's better or whatever. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Interesting. So yeah. So expert shopping, every time there's this term of shopping, I'm always imagining that we're going through John Lewis or Galerie Laviette or something. We're going through, <laughs> like, should we go with this expert or that expert? Do you want a pink one? It's interesting because I, I always <laughs> Return one? feel yeah. like there's something like nefarious involved that by using the term shopping, you're suggesting that it's not completely legitimate or treaty shopping, jurisdiction shopping, whatever mm-hmm. it is. It's intended to signal that you're not supposed to be doing it, even though it's allowed, which I don't think is necessarily fair. Maybe I'm reading well, too much into the. Well, that's we had a discussion offline. I think um, our, our fabulous editor Jan's suggestion was to speak on on the more restrictive approach of expert shopping. At least our understanding was a bit lax, but I think that expert shopping is the practice of switching experts because the first report does not support the case of the instructing party. So that would go to the negative part of the shopping. Yeah. Of the shopping is like, you're, you're not happy with it. So you just go with the Right. Well, we can try to be as noble as possible. Oui, c'est tout. C'est tout. C'est fini. fini. We'll have, we'll have a session with, with an an expert and we can ask them. Yes. Their views on, on, on our shopping of them. (laughs) <laughs> maybe <laughs> until then i'll see you guys in the metaverse yes my gosh should we do an should we do one in the metaverse should we do that i'll buy some yeah. land in the sandbox and then oh uh, my god we would need to create avatars Dog. and yeah oh that would be Host, nice. hosting a podcast is as contemporary as i will ever get not <laughs> anymore like I think a 2009 thing when did you guys podcast. what was the year you started 2017 17 yeah Okay, yeah, 15. Sure. 15 or 17. We're 2022, guys. We need to up our game and do something else. Yeah. All right. Nice speaking with you guys. (laughs) Likewise. Bye.